We have been in Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at the second half of this chapter. And as you can see, the title on the screen, Marriage, that's Picture for Eternity. So today is about marriage. And what else could we preach about? Because today is, this passage is about Adam, and specifically the creation of Eve for uh, Adam. And uh, so there is a lot that we could discuss. You know, you can go to whole seminars on marriage. You can read whole books. There is a lot to discuss. Um, but I hope today that we and you today hear from God's word and understand that marriage is something that God has instituted for his purpose, for his glory, but that is also pointing to something even greater. So let's go ahead and read chapter 2, verses 18 through 25 today. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him out of the ground. The Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature was its, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up, closed up the flesh in its place, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, you might say, exclaimed, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And as we saw last week in the first uh, part of this chapter, uh, we saw that there is much that we can learn about ourselves from these first chapters of God's word. Remember, as I mentioned last week, God is giving this, these books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus, and Numbers, were written by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the children of Israel, the Israelites, after they had come out of Egypt. And they were kind of getting a re-education in who God truly was, and ultimately in who they were. Remember, they had been in Egypt for 400 years as slaves. Just for context, that's longer than America has been a country. That's how long they had been in Egypt. They, their whole identity of who they were, their relationship to God had been uh, undermined, had been overtaken by even the thinking and the, the beliefs in Egypt. And so God is saying, I have made you my people. I have brought you out into this new relationship with me. And so I'm going to tell you who you are and who I am once again, so you know. And so that is the original context here. Through Moses, God is going back and telling his people, this is who I am and this is who you are. And as we saw fundamentally our identity as people in Adam's creation, now we get an, uh, the, the foundations of marriage, the relationship between men and women. And do you think in our day and age, we need help thinking biblically about marriage? Yes, obviously. Marriage is a difficult topic today. And throughout history, it has gone up and down in terms of cultures, how much they respected it, how much they have not respected it. And today we are in a very much a low point. Marriage rates are, are, are very, very low in, in our country because people don't think of marriage as something important. Um, most people just think you just live with someone for a while. And if it works out that you stay together, cool. But if not, you go on to the next relationship. A lot of people never get married. The average age of marriage is now creeping into the 30s for people. And some of that's intentional, and some of that's just because people can't find someone to get married to. Even Christians, you can talk to young people now, college-age people. They're very stressed about this idea of marriage because sometimes it feels difficult. It feels difficult to find someone. So even as Christians, we struggle with this. And as I look out here, I could think of all the people who are married here, who are sitting here, Lord, thankfully, with spouses in church. And you need to know how to live. And there are many people today here who have not been married or have been married at some point, but because of the sinful world we live in, uh, have come to sorrow through that. And so God has something to say to us today about marriage. And so in this text, 
so far, everything that God has made has been good, right? He made the animals. He looked at them and it was good, right? He made the sun and the moon. He looked at it and it was good. He made Adam, looked at him and wait a minute. Shockingly, the first thing that God finds that's not good here in these verses, because it is not good what that Adam, the man, should be alone. Even in this perfect garden, remember, Adam's not sinful. This is not not good because he's sinful, but because he is alone. This, of course, is God's plan all along. I don't think God was surprised by this. Like, oh, I only made I only made one human. Whoops. No, clearly he's doing this intentionally. And I think it's to teach Adam something and ultimately us something. God simply could have created Adam and Eve simultaneously. He did with all the other animals. He just said, let there be cattle. And there was, you know, two cattle. He could have just said that about us. He could have done it that way, but he didn't. I think he's wanting to teach Adam something about Eve and her necessity. And so two main points today. What are we going to see in this passage and in other passages? First, we're going to see that if you are here today as a married person in in a relationship of marriage, you should portray God's picture for marriage that we see here in Genesis chapter 2. What is the marriage that we see here? First, we have to recognize that this is God's action. Marriage is not a human construction. It's not a human idea that we have thought up. It is rooted in our very first identity, in God's first creation, in Adam and Eve. And what do we see in this marriage? How, what is marriage that we should portray? First, we see a covenant companionship. Look at verses 18 through 23. As we just read them, God says, look, Adam, it's not good that you're by yourself, which anybody who's been married can probably, any wife can tell you, it's not good that men by, are by themselves. <laughs> look. We can get into trouble, okay? <laughs> we can have our struggles, and that's even sinful us. But even Adam, who was perfect, who was sinless, still God said, look, Adam, you need some help here. Okay, you really need some help in this life. And God tells Adam this, that he needs somebody, but he also proves it to him. You might say with a show and tell. Does anyone remember show and tells in elementary school? You bring something. I don't even remember what I brought. You bring a toy or something, you know, as like a little six-year-old. And you're like, look, I brought this from home. God does this with Adam. He says, let me prove to you that you need someone else here. And so what does God do? He brings all the animals to Adam and parades them in front of him. Must have been a sight to see all the animals of creation parading through. And Adam's act of naming the animals is more than just a random choice of, of name. It is actually an act of Adam's dominion. Remember, what had God told When he created man in Genesis chapter one, God tells them, have dominion over the whole earth, right? Be fruitful, multiply, and have dominion. Basically act as my representatives on earth. And that's what Adam's doing. He's being the the shepherd of these animals, the authority over these animals, the leader over these animals. And yet, as he goes through them, you know, giraffe, he didn't speak English. I I don't know what he spoke, but we'll just pretend, you know, English, giraffe, that one's weird, Uh, you know elephant will even weirder you know dog oh maybe we'll be friends someday you know he's going through the animals he's going along okay and he gets through all of them and what does he realize none of them are on his level there's no one there's not nothing in this animal creation that is comparable to him and what is it that sets adam apart we learned this last week It is not his physical nature, but what is it that sets Adam apart? It's his life that comes from God. He's made in God's image. He has a spiritual quality about him that the animals don't have. We could say, I think, even an intellectual component that the animals don't have. And he realizes, there's none here that I can truly be an equal companion with. There's something intrinsically different between the the animals and Adam. There's no helper comparable to him and god has planned this all along he says yes you got the point if you're a teacher you always feel so good when you teach and you ask a question at the end of teaching and 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 the students like get the right answer and you're like yes you got the you got the lesson adam got the lesson (laughs) right adam got the lesson he said oh okay there's no one here that can be my companion 
So what does God do? He puts him to sleep. And literally, he takes from Adam's own flesh and bones a rib, and he creates the first woman. She is quite literally from Adam, of Adam. The same body, the same flesh. You could even say the same DNA, the same genomes. An equal partner when nothing else in creation would do. Somebody who is equal to him, who can be companion for him when no other animal can be. Uh, and there's a lot of speculation. You can read commentators and they'll like have all these ideas of why a rib, right? Why not like a foot or why not, you know, an arm? And uh, there's a little, this is a little bit of speculation, but the classic Puritan Matthew Henry says, not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. Men, we must accept that the classic masculine ideal, ideal found in so many action movies, westerns, and other media of this solitary man who needs no one but himself, and maybe, maybe just his trusty horse, or, you know, his dog. It's not biblical. As a kid, I, as I loved the books, uh, like uh, the, the Jack London books, you know, White Fang, Call of the Wild. I don't know if you've read them. And it's about this wilderness, you know, the wilderness of Alaska. It's about these men who go out into nature, into the wilderness, and all they have is their trusty companion dog. And that's all they need. You know, I think, look back, and I don't think there's any women in those books. <laughs> like, it's just men. That's not biblical. Even a sinless Adam needed a companion needed someone to complete him. And so God takes this woman, Eve, and brings her to Adam. The idea of bringing her to him is almost, it really echoes in, in a, like a father giving away the bride. We still have this in our culture today, but even more so then where the father would take his daughter and say, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you from my household now to the groom. So God has said, I, I not only have made you a wife, but I am bringing her to you. And wow, what a, what a first look. <laughs> you ever seen those videos of the first look at marriages? You know, you know, I don't know if any of you did this at your wedding. You know, some guys that just ball their eyes out. You know, some guys just laugh. Some guys are just happy. Uh, you know, I told my wife before we got married, I don't expect me to just ball my eyes out to my personality. Not that I don't like you, just I'm not going to cry like the viral videos. Adam doesn't really cry. He seems more excited than weepy, actually. He had never seen, remember, he had never seen any women, woman before. The first one he's ever seen. And not only, it's the one that God has made for him. And we have a record of this joyous expression. And as we might expect, it comes in the form of a poem. There is something within us that poetry reflects the deepest feelings of our hearts. Maybe that's why women tend to like poetry. I don't know. But what does Adam say? This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she is taken out of man. The first words quoted in the Bible are these words. For human words, I should say. The first human words quoted in the entire Bible is a love poem from Adam, the first man, to Eve, the first woman. Eve was a suitable partner for Adam. The, the word here, helper, right? This appears a couple times. God says, I will make a helper comparable, comparable for him. This word helper, this is why we go to seminary. This is why we pay the big bucks. Let me tell you what the word helper means. It means someone who, who helps. Okay, so insight that you couldn't have told from. But really, you say, what is this Hebrew word? Let me find some deep meaning. It means the one who comes along to assist, who together accomplishes the goal when one alone could not. Adam and Eve were able to together accomplish, to accomplish and to be what Adam alone could not. Later on in Exodus, this word helper uh, throughout the Hebrew Bible, uh, is it appears. For instance, when Moses has one of his kids, he names his his son Eliezer, which is from this root, helper, help. And the name of the other, this is Moses' son, Eliezer. For he said, the God of my father was my help. 
and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. God is often called the helper of Israel. Marriage as God intended is a partnership of a man and a woman united by God and together pursuing God's glory. Remember, what was the command that God had given mankind in Genesis chapter 1? Be fruitful, multiply, and have dominion over the earth. God is telling him, Adam, you cannot do this alone. You cannot fulfill this command alone. So I'm bringing someone along to be your helper. Let's think about the word comparable. So we have a helper, someone who assists, who comes alongside. But really, the word comparable carries the idea of opposite or counterpart. Eve was starkly different than Adam, yet also of one substance and nature. Anybody who's been married can tell you men and women are are very different, physically, emotionally even. And there's not some hard rule that all women are this way and all men are this way. But in a marriage, we are often very different. Yet we should be complementary of one another, fitting together to make a complete unified whole. And this is the glorious mystery of God's creation, distinct yet united, different yet together whole. Where Adam was lacking, Eve was abundant. Where Eve was deficient, Adam was sufficient. They together made a whole complete union. This is the ideal for marriage, a united partnership. And this is God's word. Marriage is not a human creation. It is God's idea, inaugurated by God and appointed for his special creation. As I said earlier, when, when God brings Eve to Adam, or to Adam, he carries this idea of a father bringing the daughter to her husband. Your marriage is not first for you. It is by God and for God's glory. This is a, a relationship built on a promise of unification, a covenant. The traditional vows uttered at weddings are valuable to help us understand that marriage is more than a temporary living arrangement. Right? You can think of the classic vows, right? For better, for worse, for richer, or poorer, sickness, sin, and health, till death do us part. Those aren't in the Bible, but they definitely reflect the biblical understanding of what marriage should be as first created. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman in which they promise to be a faithful husband and a faithful wife in a one flesh union as long as they both shall live. And this covenant relationship, though, is not just about the relationship itself. And this is where we have to step from this passage into the broader context of the Bible, because we know stuff happens after this. If we can look at what marriage is supposed to be here, and it gives us a lot of insight. But pretty soon we get to chapter three and sin appears, (laughs) right? Pretty soon other things start happening. And anybody who has lived in this life knows that marriages are not the way they are supposed to be. They are not ideal. And that is good, though, because God's plan for marriage is that it is a picture of something else. Just as marriage is supposed to be a faithful covenant relationship between a man and a woman, For this life, it is a faint reflection of God's covenant love and relationship for his people. And specifically, as the New Testament teaches, in Christ for his church. (laughs) Throughout the Old Testament, God used the picture of marriage to represent his relationship with his people. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20, he says, You shall, this is when God is redoing the law with Israel. He says, I've been your, you've been my people. Here we're giving the law a second time. He says, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him. And to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. That idea of hold fast is the exact same word as used in this chapter when it says a man shall leave and cleave to his wife. The idea of cleaving, holding fast is what God expected from his people to him. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 22, he says, if you faithfully, carefully keep these commandments, which I command you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to hold fast to him. Again, hold fast to him. In Hosea, the whole book, God uses the prophet and his in the prophet's marriage to symbolize Israel's unfaithfulness to God. God had married them. He had he he was the husband of Israel and he had remained loyal. Yet Israel the nation had been unfaithful to him. They had gone after false gods. God called them to repent and to return, return to faithful devotion to their God. How faithful is God to his people? 
even when Israel had sold themselves completely into spiritual adultery to these false idols, God still loved them because they were his bride, because he had made promises to them. And based on those promises and that covenant, he could not and would not forsake them. So also, you in your marriage should strive to portray God's, the picture of God's love, faithful love in your marriage. Your marriage can be a human, we know flawed, sign and symbol of God's love, eternal, unbreakable, and, and faithful to his people. I said, we should portray God's picture of marriage. So how do you view your marriage? Husbands, is your wife, do you view her as your companion, your partner? Do you view her as equal and necessary to accomplish God's purpose in your life? Do you recognize her as God's gift to help you when, where you lack? Do you trust her judgment and wisdom in your life? Do you listen when she has something too important to say? Or do you view yourself as sufficient without her? Yeah, I mean, it's great to have her here, but I could make it on my own. Do you view her as something less important or relegate or disregard her? Do you view her only as a servant, someone to accomplish the unlovely or necessary tasks while you work on the important stuff? The world will tell you that marriage is a ball and chain, something that only drags you down. But God teaches that a, a biblical godly marriage is someone, a partner who expands your capacity, who expands your capabilities. When she is different than you, do you view your wife as weaker and therefore less useful than yourself? Do you celebrate her differences physically, emotionally, spiritually as, as it's a good thing because she's not like me? Or do you disdain her because she isn't like you? She's not the way that you would be. Wives, do you accept and celebrate your husband's gifts? They may seem very strange to you. <laughs> you may not understand them. Again, I'm not speaking of sinful differences, sinful actions, but simply the differences in personality, interests, and desires. Are you seeking to help him achieve God's goals and glory? Or are you simply seeking to change him into what you want him to be? Do you despise him as immature or childish because he's not like you? How do you speak of him to your friends and family? Do you build him up or tear him down? Again, we recognize that in this life, there are people who live in marriages with a ungodly person. Whether that person is a non-Christian or someone who claims Christ but lives an ungodly life. And in those circumstances, it does get more difficult. Because you cannot change someone. You must rely on God to work in their lives. But for our parts, are we seeking? And if you are here and we're both spouses are Christians who want to honor the Lord, are you both seeking to have this united partnership where we are seeking God's glory together? And this covenant is based on promises to one another of total devotion and loyalty. God designed marriage to exemplify a relationship of total devotion to one another. Look at Adam and Eve, verses 23 and 24. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Adam immediately recognizes the unity. Now, of course, there's no other people there, so I don't know where else she'd come from. He's like, something happened here. I don't know. But, but he says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And literally, Eve is literally of his bone and flesh. But that reflects the unity that is the way God designed it to have in a marriage. This total unity is another element of God's first marriage. And the author, Moses, through the Holy Spirit, comments, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and they shall become one flesh. The marriage of a man and woman is an act where, where God blesses the uniting of two persons into one couple. They are no longer considered primarily part of their in own families, but rather have created together a new family. They are now only each other's. 
This means several different things. This union and total devotion means physical union and shared sexual love. Men and women are designed by God to be physically compatible. And this is the foundation for all Christian sexual ethics. Sexual activity is meant by God to be enjoyed and experienced within marriage. So then, sexual activity before marriage is sinful. The Bible calls it fornication, is the biblical word. Sexual activity that breaks the marriage boundaries, adultery, is sinful. This even includes things like lust, pornography, as Jesus taught about lust. This is why polygamy is sinful. Because it's not one man and one woman, it's one spouse and multiple other spouses. Read the Bible. And I, I challenge you to find a place in the Bible where, a, where polygamy worked out great for everyone. Every time we see polygamy in the Bible, it, it ends up with heartbreak, with difficulty, with sorrow. That is never a God-commanded solution to relationship issues. And homosexual activity is sinful because it perverts the created male and female nature of marriage. There is no biblical homosexual marriage. As Jesus said, have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, Jesus quotes this verse, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. When it comes to homosexuality, we as Christians, because of, it is a, in some ways, a perversion of the nature of relationships, if, especially if we have not grown up being exposed to it, 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 we have a very visceral reaction to it. But it is wrong for the very same reasons that sex before or outside of marriage is wrong. Because it's not within the biblical boundaries. But within the bounds of marriage, when given and received in love, it is a wonderful God-given blessing. It reflects and encourages the emotional, intellectual, and spiritual unity and openness that should exist within a God-honoring marriage. It should demonstrate the total loyal love that a couple has for one another. And as Paul explained, the focus of this in marriage should be in love and giving, not taking or receiving. Take, uh, taking is a, and focus on what I receive is the foundation for lust. It's what I want while seeking to give and to love. That is the foundation of love, to give sacrificially. So we see a physical union in total devotion. We see an emotional union in shared sorrow and joy. If you've been married, you know what it's like when one is sorrowful, the other shares in that sorrow. When one is joyful, you share in that joy. And we should. Spiritual union and shared pursuits of God. We should together be pursuing God. And again, this is God's plan, an ideal for marriage. And even intellectual union and shared goals, desires, and priorities. Even a new shared identity. Whether you like it or not. <laughs> you cannot be married and identify solely as an individual anymore. You are now identified as an individual as part of this couple. You will be known by your spouse. And they will be known by you. This unity is the reason that God hates divorce and the sins that cause divorce. As Jesus says in Matthew 19, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now we recognize divorces happen in a sinful world. And this is actually what Jesus said when asked about divorce. He said, Moses allowed divorce because of sin, because of the hardness of your hearts. And even if you have been divorced, God can forgive and heal. God can redeem anyone through Christ. But that should not be our first option, a first resort, ever. There are times in this life where relationships come to a breaking point. That's not something to celebrate as much as recognize. And as Christians, if both spouses are claiming to be Christians and seeking the Lord, then divorce really shouldn't be an option. But again, it's often caused by unrepentant sin. Always, actually. Unrepentant sin or an unbelieving spouse. The Bible also talks about that. And once again, what do we see in this marriage? A picture of God's loyal love and devotion and the loyal love and devotion he expects in return. What is the greatest commandment that Jesus quotes in the New Testament? Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. It's not talking about marriage, but if it wasn't talking about God, couldn't it? Are we not supposed to love our spouses with all of our heart, our soul, and our strength? And God says, just like that, I love you that way, and you are supposed to love me that way with total devotion. And this allusion to marriage as a picture of God's relationship with his people is expanded in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul compares the marriage to the relationship of Jesus and his church. He notes that as Christians, we have been united with Christ. We are members of his body, of his flesh and bones. See the parallel flesh and bones? It's like, I want you to understand that. When Adam says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, it's like God is saying, hey, just like that, we have been united with Christ. And he quotes, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one. That is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. We as the church and Jesus who are different, who are far greater apart than two, a spouse and another, the two spouses are, yet we have been united into one body in Christ in salvation. The marriage relationship as instituted in Genesis 2 directly reflects our union with God in Christ. Just as a husband and wife are united in marriage and no longer two, but one, so also the Christian is united with Jesus. We are Christ's body. We are one flesh with the Son of God. We are no longer independent people. We, now, we are no longer known for ourselves alone. Just like in marriage, if you are married, you are no longer known by just yourself. As a Christian, you are no longer known by just yourself. You are known by Jesus. Now, there's nothing necessarily biblical about taking a husband's last name. I don't think it's a sin issue, but it is a cultural uh, thing that is common and still traditionally is done where the wife will take the husband's name. And as Christians, we take the name of Christ. We are known by him, no longer by ourselves. And we have a shared identity, a shared purpose, a new shared spiritual life with him. We are united with him. And while still, I will say this, maintaining appropriate boundaries, the joys and blessings of marriage are in some way a small foretaste and reflection of the blessings and joys we all will experience as Christians with Jesus in eternity. And I'll just warn you, don't, you, the Bible doesn't get too specific there, so don't do that. <laughs> but there is something in this life that can point us to the blessings and joys we will experience with Jesus in eternity. And while united with him, we are also united with one another. Marriages are still foundational, but even Jesus warns us that we may be called to prioritize God over family priorities. What does Jesus say in Matthew 12? This is the setup. While he was still talking in the multitudes, behold, his mother and brother stood outside speaking, seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, Jesus, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. And Jesus answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who is my brother? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus, notice, was not married, yet he still recognized that his relationship with Father and obedience to God even overtook his family responsibilities. Marriage is not the ultimate end. It, like a great masterpiece painting of a sunset, still reflects the actual sunset. Marriage is a symbol of a greater reality but it is somewhat of a small reflection. So in your marriage, are you portraying the beautiful picture of marriage that God intended? Husbands, are you faithfully, loyally devoted to your marriage and to your wife? Are you physically, emotionally, and spiritually loyal? Are you alert to your wife's needs? Are you eager to serve her and to sacrifice for her as Jesus sacrificed himself for us? When she is burdened down with an emotional burden, are you willing to engage with her and share it? I will speak transparently. As a man, and I don't know about you other men, when, it is, when there are heavy emotions going on, I as a man naturally do not want to engage with that. 
because it's hard for me. Because men are, we, we struggle with emotion. We just, a lot of us don't know how to deal with it. We don't know how to deal with our own emotions. It feels weighty. It feels heavy. And so when, when, my, when my wife needs us, when she is burdened down with something in her, in her spirit, my natural tendency is to say, I don't, I, I'm going to disengage and let you figure it out. That is not what God has called us to do. God has called us to engage. My old pastor used to say, get up off the couch and do something, metaphorically. We men like to have our peace and quiet and our ease. And I just want to go through life without trouble. But in marriage, loyally devoted to your spouse means acting, means getting up and doing something. Whether that's physically serving, whether that's coming in alongside and sharing, whether that means being a spiritual leader, whether that means engaging in any way to serve your spouse. That's what loyal devotion is. How has God acted toward us? Jesus could have stayed in heaven, yet he came down to earth and humbled himself to serve us. Do you share, again, still speaking to husbands, do you share a spiritual purpose with your wife? Are you pursuing the glory of God together? To share a spiritual goal, you must first have a spiritual goal. Too often, it is the husbands who are kind of spiritually distant. And any pastor, any church planner can tell you, you, especially when you're starting out, you get more women, more wives who are interested in being involved in the church. And men are often the ones who are just kind of cool with not being that involved. As men, as Christians, we are called to be spiritual, spiritually active, pursuing God and encouraging our families to pursue God. Are you faithful to her physically and emotionally? Or do you reserve love? Do you reserve your love for her? Or do you harbor and cultivate desires for other women or other outlets? Pornography is a major problem in our world today. It's more prevalent and easier to access than ever before. The most prominent website registered 42 billion visitors in 2019. That's B with a billion with a B. In 2019, Jesus said in Matthew 5, in, in Matthew 5, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her in his heart. And we all, men, women, we walk around with, with this, these devices in our pockets that have access to anything that we could want. And we can talk about practical choices, practical limits, but nothing will keep you from sin like a love for God and a loyalty to your spouse. If you are doing that, if you are consuming things for your own pleasure, you are sinning against God. And if you are married, you are sinning against your spouse and you're blaspheming that union, that loyal devotion that God has portrayed and said, this is a reflection of me. That is not how God loves us. It's not how we should love our spouses. Husbands and wives are united in your marriage. Do you share your emotional ups and downs? Do you help one another pursue God in his glory? Do you view your marriage as a whole complete union? Or are you two, are you simply two individuals who happen to live under the same roof? Do you demonstrate the loyal devotion God desires within your marriage? Again, why does this matter? Because God is loyally devoted to us. So we should reflect that by being loyally devoted to, in our marriages and ultimately being loyally devoted to God. And thirdly, these, this relationship is characterized by unashamed communion. Lastly, we see in this marriage that it was characterized by an open, unashamed communion with one another. As it says in verse 25, and they were both naked and the man and his wife were not ashamed. Complete freedom. Not freedom to do as they please, but freedom from any shame or embarrassment. In this sinful life, we all have reasons to feel shame. Whether that may be our physical imperfections, just personal quirks and oddities, or our past sins, or simple social awkwardness. Yet in a marriage following God's design, these all can be overcome by love and acceptance. Adam and Eve were unashamed and completely open with one another. They had no reason to fear any kind of disdain or harsh word from one another. There was no sin yet. And in fact, the instant they did sin and break God's law, what happens? They rush to cover themselves. They felt shame because of their sin. 
Self-consciousness and shame ultimately stem from the guilt of our own failures and sin. Now, in a sinful world, many of us have been trained to feel shame for things that are, even for things that are not sinful. Many of you, I'm sure, were chastised or punished or abused as a child for things that were not sinful or wrong. You may have been trained to consider all of who you are as worthy of shame. Even now, as a Christian, you may look at yourself in the mirror and be plagued by thoughts such as, God couldn't love you, or God must be embarrassed by you and your failures. You may have been told by society that you were unlovely or should be embarrassed by how you look, your interests, your personality, etc. In those ingrained responses of shame, hiding, deflecting, self-consciousness, excessive apologizing for things that are not sinful, make relationships difficult. How hard is it to build a true union of soul, body, and spirit when we are only expecting condemnation if we open or if we are open and honest? How many husbands or wives are afraid to share what they truly feel because they think, or they actually do, receive only scorn for expressing those feelings? How many married, couple, how many married couples wish for a relationship characterized by complete peace, openness, and freedom from shame? And this is what God originally created. Guilt and shame are two awful results of sin. Guilt has to do with sin. I, this, is, this is a quote right here. I stole it. Sin, guilt is sin committed and shame is sin felt or suffered. Guilt is my standing of being under righteous judgment because of my sin. While shame is the identi identity I feel as unclean before God and others. You must recognize that all of us do stand guilty before God naturally. And indeed, in ourselves, we are unclean before God because we are sinners. When Adam and Eve sinned, they should have felt shame because of their sin. They were guilty before God. And you also stand guilty naturally in yourself before God because of your sin. As we see in Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 10 of that same chapter, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. You cannot stand unashamed or uncondemned before a holy God with your sin. Yet God does not destroy those who are guilty and shameful now, but instead provides an answer to your guilt and washes your shame away. We all bear the guilt of our sin. And as God told Adam, what happens if he sinned? And what happens when we sin? Death. We deserve death for our disobedience to our creator, yet provided this, God provided the sacrifice who died in our place for our sins. Jesus, God's only son. God deals with your guilt by taking it upon himself on the cross. We're not there yet. Isaiah 53 says, he, Jesus, is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How can you stand unashamed before God? By repenting of your sin and turning in faith to trust only in Jesus who bore your sin. When your guilt is removed and placed on Jesus, as we sang today, it was his robe of righteousness and he took my robe of sin. Your guilt is no more. You are completely forgiven. And, you, and if you have not repented from your sin, if you have not turned in faith to Jesus, then your guilt and your shame do remain. And no amount of people telling you to be unashamed will help you. Shame and guilt can only be removed through Christ. But some of you here have been forgiven. You have been set free from sin, yet you are still paralyzed by shame. And shame always runs and hides away from God. It seeks shelter from God rather than run to God. What did Adam and Eve do when they were ashamed, when they sinned? They hid from the only one who could save them. But you can be freed from your shame today in recognizing that God cleanses you from every stain. 
God did not only remove your guilt through Jesus, but also washes your shame away and gives you a new identity, pure and holy to the Lord. I just read this uh, yesterday in my devotions, but in the Old Testament, in Exodus, when God set up the priests, he told them to wear a sign on their clothes. And you know what that sign said? Holy to the Lord. Because they were dedicated, set apart to be God's ministers. And what are we called? A holy priesthood in Christ. We have been made holy before the Lord. This might seem impossible to you. How can, you might think to yourself, how can I live without shame? If you knew me, you would be repulsed. How does, but doesn't God know every one of your sins and still looks on you with love? Still bids you come to him. Look at these verses in Hebrews chapter four. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And when God splits us open, there is nowhere to hide for there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Before God and before his word and before Christ, we are opened up and there is nothing you can hide from him. But yet, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy, find help in time of need. When we are naked and open before God, what does God say? Through Christ, come to me. Don't feel shame that, that makes you run. Instead, come, and I know who you truly are. He says, still come because of Jesus. He forgives and helps, and that is grace. We are not ashamed before the Lord. If you feel shame before God today, and you are a Christian, because you have forgotten or do not understand how God looks at you. God looks at you as Christ, holy, pure, perfect before him. Not because of our perfection do we stand unashamed, but because of God's grace that exceeds our sin. If you are in Christ, you are no longer a sinner, but you are known as God as redeemed and purified by the washing of Christ's blood. So also in a Christian's marriage. As God lives graciously with us, you should live graciously with your spouse. How can you be open and unashamed with your spouse when he or she knows every flaw, every failure, every fear that you have? If we live by grace, if we forgive as we have been forgiven, if you, if you show grace, if you have been shown grace, then give grace. I promise the small things that frustrate you, the little things that your spouse do, does that annoy you are nothing compared to what you have done against the Lord. And God lives graciously. Then forgive. Love covers a multitude of sins. And again, just understand, I am not saying that you ignore serious sin. But in regular life, we should be gracious with one another. The key to being naked and not ashamed, as it says in Genesis 25, 2.25, when in fact a husband and wife do many things that they should be ashamed of, is the experience of God's vertical forgiveness. Justifying grace from the Lord that bends out horizontally to each other and is displayed to the world. And what did Jesus say in his example prayer to his disciples? Matthew 6.12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Husband, how do you treat your wife when she fails you? or annoys you, or acts in any way that you find frustrating. First, is she truly doing something wrong and sinning against God, or is she just not meeting your personal standard? You need to know the difference. Secondly, do you rebuke her because of your own frustration? You say, oh, God doesn't want you to do that. No, it's usually us. <laughs> it's just nothing to do with what God wants. It is my own frustration, my own anger. Do you yell or speak harshly? Do you degrade her? Or perhaps you punish her by withdrawing affection for a time. Have you created an environment where she feels at peace and unashamed? 
where she can feel open in your relationship? Have you communicated to her that everything she does will be judged harshly according to your standards? If Jesus treated you the same way you treat your wife, would you be happy about it? If you speak harshly or abuse your wife physically or emotionally, then you are guilty of blaspheming God's beautiful picture of marriage. It says in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And if that is true for the church in general, I'm really sure it's true for you in your marriage. Wife, how do you, wives, how do you react to your husband's failures and weaknesses? Do you seek to encourage him to honor the Lord in love, or do you undermine him by communicating in word or tone or action that he is a great failure? Do you keep a list, mentally or physically, of all the things he's done wrong? Do you remind yourself or even remind him of how often he has messed up? Or husbands and wives, the path to peace in a relationship is to act as God, to cast those small little sins that we can love can overlook into the depths of the sea. As the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103, 12. But do you hold your spouse's failures against him or her? How you treat your spouse in marriage reflects what kind of God you believe in, what kind of salvation you are have believed. Your marriage is not just about you. It is not even just about this life. Remember, your marriage is a picture of something greater. Marriage in general is for the glory of God, is intended to reflect an even greater reality than earthly marriage. You must portray God's picture in your marriage, but also you must pursue eternal union with God in Christ. Marriage is, in fact, temporary. When Jesus was asked about this by the Sadducees who questioned him to try to trick him, saying, you know, there's this guy, he marries the first, uh, uh, he or this woman, she marries the first brother, he dies, she marries the second brother, he dies, the third brother, you know, and so on for seven brothers, which first of all, like, okay, by like brother number three, I'd be like, well, I don't think I want to marry her. In a theoretical story, she says, who's in, in eternity, in the resurrection, whose wife is she? Is she like some kind of eternal polygamist now because she married seven brothers who died? And Jesus says, almost mockingly, he answers and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. You ever see those little signs? Faith, family, forever. That's wrong. Your marriage is not eternal. Your marriage is for this life. One day in the resurrection, you will not be married to your spouse. You will stand before God as individuals in Christ. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman in which they promise to be faithful, faithful husband and faithful wife in one new one flesh union as long as they both live. This covenant is designed to showcase the covenant-keeping, faithful love of God. So pursue eternal union with God in Christ. And what do we see as God's relationship with us? A covenant relationship. The marriage symbol should make us yearn for full companionship with our creator. Even if you have a good marriage, it should make you yearn for eternity when you can be with the one who created you forever. As God made Adam and Eve men and women for companionship, God has made us for companionship with him. You are God's creation before you are anything else. And as we learned last week, you are remade into the image of Christ at salvation. You have been brought into a covenant relationship with God in Christ. What did Jesus say at the Last Supper? This is the new covenant in my blood. Here, in Christ, your deepest needs are met, your weaknesses are filled, your purpose is completed. No matter how great your marriage, your spouse cannot fully complete you, because God is the only one of capable of doing so. So yes, if you are married, display God's glorious grace in your marriage, but recognize that even your most treasured earthly relationships will melt away in eternity into the great marriage that we share in Christ. If you are single now, whether by choice or not, Recognize that 
you, you are destined for an eternal relationship with God. God may bring a partner along beside you, or he may not. But even if he doesn't, God will be your portion and your inheritance. You may not have the gift of creating, you may not be given the gift from God of creating a new family unit in this life through marriage, but you are part of God's family in the church. We are made into a new creation together. And we look forward to the day when Christ returns to be, returns and be in eternal life together with him. As Galatians 3 says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you were, as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, but all are one in Jesus. And married, married people in our church today, we must recognize this as well. Even though marriage is a great gift from the Lord, it is not the ultimate. So let the joy and the pain, the fullness and the emptiness, the loneliness and the partnerships of this life drive you to the ultimate joy, fullness, and companionship of God and Christ for eternity. And what does God's relationship with us result in? Loyal devotion. The marriage symbol gives us a pale reflection of God's loyal devotion to us. As, as God writes in Hebrews 13, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, companion that comes alongside us. I will not fear what can man do to me. And that relationship with God is a covenant relationship which results in loyal devotion and characterized by unashamed communion. This mar marriage in this life is a symbol that may point us to understand in some way the unashamed openness of God's relationship and love for us. Many of you here today do not have and may never experience the ideal marriage as God intended. Perhaps you are single. Perhaps some of you may be single the rest of your lives. Some of you are married but are united with an unbelieving spouse or a spouse who resists God's working and will never be that spouse the ideal spouse, as God intended. Perhaps you've been divorced, whether that is because of your own sin or someone else's sin. Perhaps you have lost your spouse to death. Perhaps you feel the empty spot where the joy of marriage you used to exist. You are not hopeless. Marriage is not the ultimate plan for eternity. And I can't honestly, I would be lying to tell you that it is not a blessing that is not a gift from God. Yes, it is good. But if you live your life and miss the ideal godly marriage, which all of us will miss the ideal perfect marriage, to some degree, take heart. You are not lesser before God. You are not deficient. You will not be a second class Christian when it comes to eternity. In Isaiah 56, in the prophecy from God to Israel, in a great time of sorrow and loss. He says, do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak saying, the Lord has uttered, utterly separated me from his people, nor let the eunuch, those who do not have a family, who could not have children, nor let the eunuch say, here I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who honor the Lord and choose what pleases me and hold fast, cleave to my covenant. Even to them, I will give him in my house. And within my walls, a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. No matter what your relationship status, God honors faithfulness to him. In church, are we living in light of eternity? Do we consider that this congregation, this body of Christ in which we are all united, do we care for those who are lonely or needy? Do we treat others like marriage is the ultimate end? Or do we recognize that one day we will all be single in Christ for eternity, enjoying God forever? Portray God's marriage, God's picture of marriage if you are married. But if you are, if you are not married or it is beyond your capability to do so, pursue eternal union with God in Christ. And even if you have a good marriage, remember, it is Christ for eternity that is the goal. I'll end with these verses. Revelation 19, the end of scripture. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, 
as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true saints of God. Father, I pray that you would help.